0: I'm also immensely grateful to have Josh as a friend, as you could imagine. Uh, Little did I know when we were fighting over closet space back there uh, in the room that we shared at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in 2004, just how the Lord would use him in my own life. You see, Josh is not just a stylish dresser with a surprisingly convincing country accent, Uh, he is also very wise. So Josh's advice has been instrumental to me in some of the most important decisions in my life. The decision to go to seminary, the decision to marry my wife, which was part of the reason why I asked him to be the best man in my wedding, and the decision to move to my current job at Whitworth. And, and Josh is not only wise, he is also humble. He's one of those people, I hope you've experienced this like I have, who consistently treats people as if they are more significant than himself. I experience that from him in every conversation that I have with him. And Josh's wisdom and humility, if not his fashion sense, are all built on the firm foundation of his commitment to the truth of the gospel. And it's that combination of wisdom with humility and faith that make him truly wise and such a good friend. Now, wisdom, like Josh's, is currently in high demand, but unfortunately, in very low supply, and it's always been that way, and that's why Proverbs claims that wisdom is more precious than jewels. When Solomon is given the opportunity to ask for anything he desires, he chooses not riches, long life, or power, but wisdom which befits the supreme value of wisdom. Not least because, as God tells Solomon in response to his choice, wisdom is more likely to bring all of those other blessings in its wake than any of those things are likely to bring wisdom. And we recognize this. I mean, I've been studying biblical wisdom for 10 years now. And during that time, I have started to notice something about public prayers that I hear in the church and I hear as people pray for one another. With the exception of health, the most common thing that people ask for others in prayer is wisdom, right? Lord, give her wisdom as she faces this difficult decision. Lord, give our leaders wisdom. And I can't say whether Christians request wisdom in their private prayers more than anything else, but one could make a good argument that they should. As James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when we ask for wisdom, what exactly are we asking for? Wisdom is immensely valuable. We can all agree on that. But where does that value come from? And why should we desire wisdom? How do we get it? Can we lose it? So as we consider the book of Proverbs this morning, the biblical book that's most concerned with wisdom, these are the crucial questions to answer. And as we do so, I want to suggest that the supreme value Proverbs gives to wisdom is paired with a recognition throughout the rest of the Bible that wisdom on its own often, we might even say inevitably, fails. So we'll look first at the supremacy of wisdom Then, at the the insufficiency of wisdom, before finally considering the solution that Scripture offers to this tension, by teaching that true wisdom must be built on the foundation of the fear of the Lord. So first, the supremacy of wisdom. Second, the insufficiency of wisdom. And then your big idea, true wisdom must be built on the foundation of the fear of the Lord. When trying to understand biblical wisdom, the natural place to start is the beginning of the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bible in front of you, I encourage you to open it to Proverbs 1, because we're going to be walking quickly through Proverbs chapters 1 to 3 this morning. Now commentator Derek Kidner observes, The book of Proverbs opens by breaking up the plain daylight of wisdom, or chokhmah in Hebrew, into its rainbow of constituent colors. And these all shade into one another, and any one of them can be used to represent the whole. Yet there's some value to seeing them momentarily analyzed and grouped. And that's what we encounter here in the first six verses of Proverbs, which you just heard read. But listen to them again. Listen to the different words being used here. Get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. So looking at wisdom through the prism of its prologue, we can understand its meaning through five words particularly associated with it here. So first, in verse 2, wisdom is associated with instruction, musar, which involves discipline or training, ranging from simple warning to chastening and rebuke. Attaining wisdom, Proverbs tells us, will not be easy. Second, wisdom involves understanding and insight, bina, which refers to choosing between options or discernment, distinguishing between wisdom and foolishness, good and evil. Third, wisdom includes instruction in wise dealing, Haskil is the Hebrew word here. This refers to practical wisdom, to know-how, savoir-faire, an ability to get things done. In Genesis 3, this is what Eve mistakenly hopes to gain by disobeying God's command and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Haskil. So here in Proverbs 1, wise dealing is coupled with righteousness justice, and equity. And these are important values for the Hebrew prophets, emphasizing not only the practical dimension to the word wisdom, but also the moral quality of God's true wisdom. Fourth, in verse 4, wisdom also involves prudence, orma, which conveys craftiness or shrewdness. This is actually the word used to describe the serpent in Genesis 3. And a similar word translated discretion later in the verse, so often degenerates into mere scheming that it can be used by itself in a bad sense more often than in a good one. But these qualities don't have to be corrupt. They can refer instead to responding appropriately to the nature of the world in order to find success. So Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, The prudent, Ormah, sees danger and hides himself but the simple go on and suffer for it. Finally, wisdom involves knowledge. Da'at, in verse 4, and learning, le'chach, in verse 5. And the former word implies not so much an informed mind as a knowing of truth, and indeed, of God himself. And the latter tends to emphasize that doctrine is something that must be taken hold of, grasped, become a conviction if it is to have its proper effect. On our lives, So wisdom in these opening verses is presented as a multifaceted jewel. It's profitable for all, to the simple and young, as well as to the wise and discerning. Wherever you are in your life, whatever stage you are in, in the attainment of wisdom, you will benefit from more. And that's what Proverbs offers to us. So how can we attain this wisdom? Well, chapter 2 tells us this. Notice here the verbs that are used in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. They all suggest strenuous effort. So two, one, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, and then contrast that with verse 6 in chapter 2. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we must earnestly seek wisdom, but wisdom is a gift from God. It's almost paradoxical. and We see this as well in chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, we, that we just read. So verses 1 to 5 claim the book of Proverbs is designed to offer the reader All those facets of wisdom that we just looked at. But then in verse 6, it says all those traits of wisdom are there to enable one to understand proverbs and parables, the sayings of the riddles of the wise, which is precisely what the book of Proverbs consists of. So understanding the book of Proverbs gives you the wisdom to understand the book of Proverbs, which gives you wisdom. So how do we comprehend that? How does that work? Well, we have to appreciate three things. So first, God provides the means for gaining wisdom. Proverbs 20, verse 12. Ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Second, God is the source of wisdom. It is he who created the world in wisdom. We see that in Proverbs 8. Third, Wisdom is more than just an intellectual activity, a mental skill like chess playing or equation solving. Wisdom is not the sole possession of the academic elite. And if you've spent any time with the academic elite, you know this to be true, right? No, wisdom is strongly moral. So if we look down in chapter 2, verses uh, 7 and 8, he holds success in store for the upright, He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Wisdom comes to the upright and the blameless, the just and the faithful. But also, biblical wisdom is a spiritual quality. It comes to those who fear the Lord. More on that in a moment. So the mind, the will, the heart, And the soul are all bound up. All are intertwined in this single rope that is wisdom. All are involved in its attainment. So, we know what wisdom is and how we can attain it. But why should we want to? Why should we want to put all of this effort into gaining wisdom? Well, Proverbs 3 now tells us why. So we start in verse 13. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. The benefit of wisdom, to put it in a word, is life. Well-being in its broadest sense, material riches, and social value, peace, and honor. Blessings that are personal and psychological, moral and spiritual. Often, as we've already seen, one can detect undertones of Genesis 2 and 3 in these first chapters of Proverbs. You heard the tree of life there. In a sense, Proverbs tells us that through fellowship with God, what was lost with paradise and waits to be regained can be enjoyed in some measure here and now when a person walks with God in wisdom. Wisdom is a description of the way that God has ordered the world from the beginning. It's the way we were meant to live. As human beings. Now, I know all of this is a little bit abstract and perhaps somewhat difficult to follow. So, as is often the case, the Bible offers us a narrative to demonstrate these truths. So, it's similar to the way that a preacher will use stories to illuminate his points. Proverbs begins by associating the book with Solomon, right? The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. This should immediately make us think of the account of Solomon and his reign in 1 Kings 1 to 11. And that account acts as a definition of wisdom in narrative form. So here's a quick overview. 1 Kings 3 tells us how Solomon acquired his wisdom. In a dream, God offers to give Solomon whatever he wants. And because Solomon chooses wisdom instead of riches or long life or power, God declares that he will give Solomon all of those things along with wisdom. And the next two chapters tell us about Solomon's great wisdom, including the fact that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all of the wisdom of Egypt. And people come from all the nations to hear Solomon's wisdom. And he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, likely including the very ones that are collected here in the book of Proverbs. Solomon's wisdom give him everything that Proverbs 3 promises. Long life, immeasurable riches, international honor, peace for his kingdom. Solomon's kingdom is described in 1 Kings 10 as overflowing with gold, which is mentioned 10 times in 9 verses. And silver there is said to be so, unco- so common that it's almost worthless. Solomon's reign is literally the golden age of Israel, and from those riches, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, offering lavish sacrifices to God and demonstrating the way that he feared the Lord. If we read the account of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 1-11 to as a narrative definition of wisdom and its benefits, then we might expect it to end, as dictionary definitions often do, with a list of synonyms and antonyms. Right? We can understand what a word means both by knowing words that mean something similar and also those with the opposite meaning. And the definition of wisdom that we encounter in First Kings 1 to 11 is actually no different. Just as in his life Solomon defines what it means to be wise, he also demonstrates exemplary foolishness, which is all the more striking given the matchless wisdom that was divinely bestowed upon him. The story of his reign ends with his disobedience and idolatry, which is blamed for the division and then the later downfall of the nation of Israel. But how can this be? How can the paragon of wisdom act so foolishly? Solomon's life story teaches us some important truths about wisdom. Most crucially, that though wisdom may be supreme, it is not self-sufficient. Wisdom on its own is insufficient to guarantee the blessings that it promises. It's not clear precisely when Solomon's wisdom started to waver, but the biblical historian makes it very clear where his wisdom went completely off the rails. As he describes the apex of Solomon's gold-plated greatness in chapter 10, the reader familiar with God's law in Deuteronomy will start to get uncomfortable. You see, Deuteronomy 17 lays out a law for the king and how the king should behave. There, the king is commanded not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold for himself. It also says the king should not import horses from Egypt, which is precisely what the historian tells us that Solomon did there in chapter 10. Then finally, in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 4, The biblical historian brings the hammer down. You see, Deuteronomy 17 declares that the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. But the author of Kings writes, King Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. Solomon's foolish failure comes from turning away from the Lord and disobeying his commands. Solomon's incomparable wisdom was not enough, in the end, to sustain even Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom fails to be wisdom when it is separated from obedience to God. Without a foundation built on that rock, wisdom collapses into foolishness. And this is a truth as old as history. Genesis 3, with its connections to Proverbs 1 to 9 that we noted earlier, tells us exactly the same thing. The serpent asks Eve, if the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil makes one wise, how can eating from it be a bad thing? And Eve buys that argument, as does Adam. But God's response, his curses, indicate that they've all been mistaken. To grasp the gift of wisdom for oneself rather than waiting for it to be given by God, to get it your own way, to attempt, as Adam and Eve did, to be self-sufficiently wise, will only make one a fool. And we see this throughout the prophetic books as well. Particularly in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, we encounter this group of people called the wise. But neither prophet has a very high opinion of them. So Isaiah says in chapter 5, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. And then in chapter 29, Isaiah reports the Lord's judgment on the wise. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Therefore, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent Will vanish. Jeremiah, in chapter 8, declares, How can you say we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped. Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? When we read Proverbs in this broader biblical context, it radically changes the way that we look at it. The book of Proverbs, which is intended to teach wisdom, fails to do so over and over again. Solomon does not learn the lessons of his own book. And throughout the book, those lessons are addressed to the author's son. And yet Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is even more foolish than he is. Even within the book itself, we have included what we might think of as its first book review. And it's not a positive one. In Proverbs 30, 1 to 3, at the end of the book, there's this man named Augur. And he writes, I am weary, God. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. So if that were a blurb on the back cover of Proverbs... It wouldn't help the book sell many copies. Even Hezekiah, who had his scribes copy Solomon's Proverbs, according to Proverbs 25, verse 1, foolishly shows the riches of his kingdom to the Babylonians, which entices them to return, conquer Judah, and carry all of those riches away. So Hezekiah acts foolishly as well. The other figures in the Old Testament whose views are most like that of Proverbs and who even quote Proverbs at times, the so-called wise men and the prophets that we looked at, Job's friends, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, they're all shown to be deficient in their wisdom. And the people of Israel as a whole who preserved this book of proverbs who handed it down over generations and as Deuteronomy 4:6 claims were supposed to show their wisdom and understanding to the nations by observing carefully God's commandments actually disobey those commandments time and time again demonstrating their foolishness and leading to divine punishment a humiliating defeat by those very nations and exile So, when we consider the Old Testament as a whole, we might legitimately say that in its aim to teach wisdom, Proverbs is a failure. It's just like the Mosaic Law, which instructs in righteousness, but could not create a righteous people. There is, of course, more to this story, however. Wisdom is dangerous, and so is the book of Proverbs, which offers it. It can lead to overconfidence to pride, and ultimately to foolishness and destruction. Wisdom should come with a warning label. And of course, the book of Proverbs is wise enough to be aware of this. It includes its own caution to handle the wisdom that it provides with care. 26.9, like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. 26.12, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. 16.18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So as Michael Fox observes in his commentary, you could even memorize the entire book of Proverbs and still be a fool. One needs wisdom to make the right use of Proverbs. You can, like Augur, come to the end of Proverbs and not be any wiser. Or, what is more dangerous, you could think that you are much wiser when true wisdom, in fact, remains beyond your grasp. But the ultimate safety warning in Proverbs is one that the book figuratively puts in big, bold letters on its packaging by repeating it both at the beginning and the end of those opening nine chapters that set the stage for the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs nine ten. Then right in the middle of the book, at fifteen thirty-three, we are reminded again wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. And finally, at the end of the book, in the description of the noble wife, where wisdom is again defined through a personification, the importance of the fear of the Lord is repeated once more. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Wisdom cannot be separated from the fear of the Lord. Then, just in case we've missed it, the same idea is repeated in three other biblical books. Job says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Summarizing the the teaching of Ecclesiastes on on wisdom, Ecclesiastes 12.13 declares, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the duty of all mankind. So, just like you shouldn't operate heavy machinery on certain medications, you shouldn't attempt to be wise apart from the fear of the Lord. The natural questions, then, are first, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And second, how is the fear of the Lord related to wisdom? And I've observed that biblical scholars and ordinary readers of the Bible, too, often treat the book of Proverbs as simply a collection of wise sayings about life not unlike what you might find in other ancient literature that's cut off from Israel's law and history. But separating Proverbs off from the foundations of Israelite faith makes it difficult to understand what the fear of the Lord actually means. Without God's self-revelation in the rest of the Bible, how will we know who this Lord is? And without God's revelation of his commands and character, why and how... Should we fear him? Proverbs, like the other so-called wisdom books, declares that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. And actually, compared to other similar ancient Near Eastern texts, the rooting of these books of wisdom in the fear of God is unparalleled. There is something distinct here. It's important. And yet, cordoning off these books from the rest of the Bible as, quote-unquote, wisdom literature evacuates the fear of the Lord of any concrete meaning and leaves it as merely an abstract respect for a higher power. And this is not the way that the Old Testament as a whole presents the fear of the Lord. It's a fear instilled in the people in their encounter with the God who brought them out of Egypt, delivering them from bondage. When this God appeared in cloud and fire on Mount Sinai, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that... The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's a fear that should inspire obedience, not terror. And at that mountain, this God gave his people his law as a blessing. Moses tells them how they should respond to their God. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him? To love Him. See, this is a fear that incorporates love. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Or as Proverbs puts it very similarly in chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, Submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. The fear of the Lord is a fear oriented toward trust, and it leads to true health and nourishment. For the Israelites, wisdom is not abstract, it's not self sufficient, it has a very concrete foundation. The fear of the Lord. Gerhard von Rad, the most influential wisdom scholar of the 20th century, offers some helpful insight here. And as a biblical scholar, I'm contractually obligated to quote a German scholar at some point whenever I speak. So here we go. Von Rad writes that Proverbs teaches us that the search for knowledge can go wrong because of one single mistake at the beginning. Israel attributes to the fear of God, to belief in God, a highly important function in respect of human knowledge. Israel was in all seriousness of the opinion that effective knowledge about God is the only thing that puts a man into a right relationship with the objects of his perception. You will only perceive the world rightly if you see the world through the lens of the fear of the Lord, Von Rod is suggesting. But we can actually go further than Von Rod. The fear of God does not merely give us the knowledge to properly perceive the world around us, but the wisdom to guide us through that world to the blessings that God has designed for us and that he provides for us. So this involves establishing Proper relationships with the objects that fill God's word. Loving what is good, true, and beautiful, and turning away from what is evil. So this one crucial relationship undergirds every other relationship that we have in our lives. The one with the creator of all things puts all those other relationships in perspective. And enables us to see everything clearly. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as i believe that the sun has risen not only because i see it but because by it i see everything else however proverbs first kings 1 to 11 and the rest of the old testament impress upon us how wise in our own eyes we are all blind to the sun and therefore we stumble through the world that that sun illuminates We all fail to live with the proper fear and obedience that a relationship with the Lord requires. And that frustrates our relationships with everything else. We impatiently grasp at the knowledge of good and evil. We glory in the riches that wisdom brings and forget the one who gave them all to us. We foolishly bow to idols, disregarding God's guidance, and we instead follow our own desires. And in our pride we stride confidently toward our own destruction. As Paul says in Romans 1, Claiming to be wise, we become fools. Exchanging God's glory for worthless imitations. If even Solomon, right, divinely endowed with wisdom, wiser than anyone on earth, the author of the book of Proverbs can become so foolish, what hope do we have? Not much. But, fortunately, Solomon is not the only narrative embodiment of wisdom that we encounter in Scripture. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? Whoever listens to my words and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus Christ is the one person who lived all that wisdom is, a life of discipline, A life of understanding and insight. A prudent life. Doing what is right and just and fair. A life lived in the fear of the Lord. He didn't heap up gold or build palaces or import horses from Egypt or marry hundreds of wives. He went humbly to a cross. Died and then rose again. Jesus doesn't merely demonstrate God's wisdom. He defines it. As Paul says in Colossians 2, it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Perceiving the proper relationship between all things means perceiving where they stand in relationship to him. As Paul writes a few verses earlier, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus defines wisdom in a way that reveals and corrects its insufficiency since it frustrates any attempt to be wise in one's own eyes, right? Think back to what Malachi read at the beginning of the service from 1 Corinthians 1, 22, about how God frustrates the wisdom of the wise, right? He does these things to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Not in our own wisdom, but in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Later, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 3.18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So how do we pursue true wisdom? A wisdom that will not become foolishness. Well, we embrace the foolishness of a crucified Savior. And how do we do that? Well, we repent of the ways we have foolishly failed to fear God and have disobeyed His commandments. And instead, we trust in His wisdom rather than our own. I was um, talking to my Uber driver when I was coming from the airport. And she was asking me about what it meant to be a Christian. And I looked up on the dashboard, and she had Google Maps going to get our directions. And I said, well, you know, it's a little bit like this. We're all born with self-fulfillment set as the destination in our Google Maps for our lives. We just are born wanting to go to that destination. And becoming a Christian means setting a new destination in the Google Maps of our lives, which is the glory of God. And more than that, it gives us the insight, the direction, the perspective. So we're not just looking at what's right ahead of us in front of the car to decide where we turn. But instead, we have that all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise perspective of God, which is much better than a satellite (laughs) up above the earth, that guides us towards that destination. And what's amazing about it is what we find out in the end is that the destination of God's glory is where we also find true self-fulfillment. So we're not really giving one up to get the other. By getting the other, we get them both. So we turn to God. We set a new destination for our lives. As James said, we ask God for wisdom in prayer. But we also do what the Israelites could and should have done in the Old Testament. We listen to his words and put them into practice. And we become like that wise man who built his house on a rock. In 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16, Paul writes, The holy scriptures, by which he primarily means the Old Testament, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So do you hear some of those wisdom words from Proverbs 1 there? God's word in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, is given to train you in wisdom. Where do you need to be corrected, even rebuked, to be equipped for the good works that God has for you? James describes true wisdom this way. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the kind of person who lives that way? To be a church filled with people living that way, pure, peace-loving, considerate, Submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. What could be more valuable than that? Jewels pale in comparison. So as you pray, as you read God's word, as you participate in the fellowship of his redeemed church, as you follow wisdom's direction for navigating your life towards the ultimate, defi- ultimate destination of God's glory, May you heap up all the treasures of true wisdom, both hidden and revealed in Jesus Christ through true wisdom of God. Let's pray.